Amen. You can be seated. Kids, you can be dismissed off to class. And uh, the rest of you, I'd invite you to open up to Luke chapter 8, which is where we'll be. Uh, welcome back, high schoolers. We just had a bunch of high schoolers that were off in the woods for the last week. Um, also an incredible group of young adults that hung out with them. And um, many of them are now here in first service at 9 o'clock on a Sunday morning. Good job. This is late for them. They've been up early each week. What am I talking about? This is, this is a, probably a sleep-in morning for them. Well, listen, we've been in Luke 8, uh, and last week we looked at this, that Jesus leads his followers out into stormy, scary seas. And that's true in Luke 8, and it's true for followers today, that Jesus, the Word of God, leads us into scary places. What's powerful to see in Luke 8 is this, with one word, Jesus manages to calm a storm and disturb his disciples. The disciples shifted from fearing the storm and the seas, we're going to die, right, to asking this question, who is this? Who is in our boat? We thought we had one picture, one understanding of who Jesus was, and we just witnessed something. We're good Jewish boys. We know our scripture. The one who commands the seas, the one who talks to the weather and it listens, that's God. So it leaves them with this powerful question, who is this? Today the answer is given, and the answer comes from the most unlikely of sources. Uh, Much to our shame, the Christology of demons is more on point than almost any other character in the New Testament as we see Jesus' life unfold. And in fact, it's actually more accurate than many who would name the name Christian today, walking around on the planet, many other other humans. So we're going to look at that. In fact, really, there's lots to look at here, um, and, and uh, we're, we're looking at demon oppression, evangelism, the nature of good and evil, which we've just been singing about. Um, there is pervasive, multifaceted bondage that comes from Satan and his demons. We're going we're gonna to look at some of that this morning. There's also complete liberation found in the power of the wonderful name that we just have been singing to. We're going to frame, or I'm going to frame, we're not going to do anything. I set this up. I'm going to frame looking at this by seeing the response from three different sources to Jesus. Uh, The demons, the townspeople, and then the formerly possessed man. I used to work as an intern under a fabulous junior high pastor named Dave Underwood. He's now in Idaho. Um, and I actually texted him this week because I remember um, a, I was the intern supposed to be, you know, serving the kids, but I was learning as my youth pastor was teaching me. And, uh, and we got to this passage and he, I, I've, I've resurrected a title that he came up with and I texted him. I said, Dave, your creativity lives on. A nude, rude dude in a bad mood meets the good doctor. Meets the good doctor was mine, but a nude, rude dude in a bad mood um, stuck with me. Why? Because creativity does that. So I thanked him. I said, dude, thanks for lodging that in my mind. Um, so I'm going to give props to him. Chapter 8 uh, is, is another set of miracles, um, in some ways similar, but in some ways very different to some other sets of miracles. If you look at chapter 4 and 5 of Luke, and then chapter 7 of Luke, there's these sets of miracles 
that are going on. The way I framed uh, chapter 7 was that Jesus was making house calls, that he was um, addressing evils that exist in this world. Um, This is where our faith in God, kind of the rubber meets the road. This isn't just ethereal stuff. Um, This is Jesus healing actual diseases. This is Jesus confronting death and raising people from the dead. This is Jesus forgiving our sin, atoning for it, freeing us from it. And this is Jesus restoring the faith. Remember John the Baptist sends his disciples because he's in prison. He's wondering, is this even, are you who I thought I was? And so we all wrestle with these things. We have these, these unwelcome bouts with doubt. And our faith in Jesus has real answers. Go and tell your disciples what you've seen and heard. And so Jesus is addressing these things. Now, you don't need to write any of this down. Uh, these are found in commentaries. Okay, So people who sit around are much smarter than me that, that have time to compile these things. But, but I, I'm not showing this to you. I, I want to basically show my work. I, I want to show you that there are, some, there are some really powerful things to sort of see grouped together as you pull back and, and, and look at it. In fact, I hope as we go through Luke, I hope periodically you would go back and actually just read in one sitting chapters 1 through 5. And then pick up chapters 5 through 10 maybe and just sit down and in one reading just kind of read the flow of the story so you can kind of see what's happening. Luke, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is grouping these things, and he's showing us some things. Let me, let me show you something powerful that was drawn out by a commentator. Um, the first is this, that these, these first sets of, of miracles, uh, particularly 4 and 5 and chapter 7, are all done for the general public. There's lots of crowds around. And so I'm not going to go through each one of these, but, but you can see that, and you can remember that these were done in very crowded places. These were done sort of for the general public. And then by contrast, what we see Jesus doing in chapter 8 is something very different. Uh, we see Jesus curing the ailments of sin in front of only a few people. And there's actually specific commands or calls to the committed followers that he is now doing miracles for. We're going to see that again in our, in our text today. So again, very small number of people in the boat last week. Um, a very small number of people witnessed the actual miracle here. Um, and then the, the raising of Jairus' daughter next week, we will see that. Here's what I want to point out, though. Both of these show power over evil that faces us, whether in our body, whether in our soul, our spirit, whether in our mind, kind of the, the doubts, the intellectual doubts that might come, or even the circumstances, or even the weather. So Jesus is displaying pervasive, unequaled, unrivaled power over all of these things. But there is a progression that Luke is giving. Why? So to look at the general versus the specific. Here's a couple of thoughts. Perhaps this is to show that while God is good to all, God is calling a specific people out unto himself. So it starts very general. God sends his reign on the just and who? The unjust. You don't have to be good to God to receive God's goodness. Amen? That's just true. So maybe Luke is showing us that God's miracles, God's power is for the general public, but that he's calling out a specific people. Because as we move along in chapter 8, we see that. Secondly, we see this, is that Jesus wasn't on a mission just to do as much good to as many people as possible. Otherwise, wouldn't it stand to reason that he would start with crowds and continue with even greater crowds, right? If Jesus came to simply be a do-gooder, 
to heal the sick, to raise the dead, to forgive the sin. He would, he would just find the largest amphitheater and, 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 and try to get as many people there as possible. That's not what we see Jesus doing. Jesus came to go to Jerusalem. Why? To die. Jesus came for a very specific mission. He completed that mission. And it wasn't necessarily just to do the mass amount of good on his three and a half years. Finally, we know this because we get to see the end of the story, or at least the continuing story, and that is this. The mission that Jesus was on would be left in the hands of his followers. So Jesus, like a good coach, is training up, like a good parent is passing along. We don't want our children to live with us forever, be dependent on us forever. We want them to grow up and go away and be established on their own. Jesus is like a good parent, like a good coach, training them up to stand on their own. He knows that quite literally the destiny of humanity rests on the mission being handed to these 12 disciples. So, as the good doctor is passing on his practice to his residence, so to speak, um, we see him uh, entering into, bringing them along with him into face some different things. The miracles in chapter 8 are, are four committed followers. And so, church, hear me. We always look at the text within the context that that was an actual storm that happened last week that we looked at. And, metaphorically, Jesus leads us into storms. And can quiet the storms. We also look very, very specifically that this is an actual miraculous healing that takes place. And we are his committed followers. So what does the text have to do with us? What knowledge do we gain as committed followers? We're going to look at um, a very recent convert to Jesus and a very specific command and obedience. Just the fruit of one who's repented and said, yeah, Jesus, you are Lord. Uh, and, and this person obeys. So... Luke chapter 8, we'll start in verse 26. It's interesting that Jesus gets in a boat to calm a raging storm on a lake. Jesus gets out of a boat to calm a raging storm in a person. The focus of God are people. Because people are material like the earth, but immaterial because they're soul. They will last forever. And so we see special focus clearly in Jesus with people. Chapter uh, chapter 8, not chapter Luke, chapter 8, verse 26 in Luke says this. Then they sailed to the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee. When Jesus had stepped out on land, there met him a man from the city who had demons. For a long time he had worn no clothes, and he had not lived in a house but among the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him and said in a loud voice, What do you have to do with me, Jesus? Son of the Most High God, I beg you, do not torment me. Verse 29, for he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. For many a time it had seized him and kept, and he kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles, but would break the bonds and be driven by the demons into the desert. Jesus then asked him, what is your name? And he said, Legion, for many demons had entered him. And they begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. Now a large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, Jesus, to let them enter the pigs. So he gave them permission. Then the demons came out of the man and entered the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and drowned. 
I'm going to take you back to the very start of Jesus' ministry. In fact, his very first sermon. Jesus made a claim that was absolutely unmistakable. He pulls out the scroll of Isaiah and he says in absolutely clear terms. And we know this because there was a violent response. They spoke well of Jesus when he started. Wow, local homeboy makes good. This guy's good. This is a good teaching. By the end of it, they literally want to throw him off the cliff. You know your sermon's powerful um, when you get that kind of response. He makes in no unmistakable terms that he was the fulfillment of the prophecy made 700 years prior by Isaiah, which was this, that a Messiah would come and not only preach good news, but listen to this, release the captives and set free the oppressed. What I want to show this and why I want to bring you back to Jesus' first sermon is here's an example of this. This is a part of what Jesus was and is doing. He is setting free those who are captive. Captive by what? By demonic forces, by a legion of demons possessing this man. Luke tells us that these events happened uh, right after each other. Verse 22 that we looked at last week, one day he got into a boat. Verse 26 says, then they sailed to the country of the Gerasenes. So this is, this is something that happened sort of right on the heels of it. Now, it's summertime. Some of you may have uh, been up to Lake Tahoe recently. But if this were Lake Tahoe, just to kind of give you uh, perspective, they would start in Capernaum, which would be somewhere near sort of Carnelian Bay, sort of northwest shore of, of Lake Tahoe. And then they would cross, Lake Tahoe is a much bigger lake. But in perspective, they would kind of go over and kind of cross over to the land of the, of, of the Gerasenes. What's that? Some of you have been to Sand Harbor. Sand Harbor is a really cool place to check out. Here's why this is a really decent comparison, though. Is that that's the general trajectory of what they, of what they sailed to. But more potent, and why this makes such a good comparison, is that when you cross from one side to the other, you're crossing a border. When you cross Lake Tahoe from that spot to that spot, you have crossed from California to Nevada. Now, for us, not that huge of a deal. If you were driving, you'd see a sign that says, now entering Nevada. Not, not a massive deal. But the border for these disciples, for Jesus, to be going from Israel country, God-worshipping, one true God-worshipping country, over to this other place is far more monumental. And so as they sail from one to the other, by the way, what's the dead giveaway? There's pig herders here. That's unheard of in Israel, right? You would never have that. So you are now in Gentile country. You're, you're in somewhere very, very different than where you just left in Capernaum. Jesus, this is really important. In fact, this isn't in your notes, but if you want to write something down this morning, write this down. Jesus releases the captive, this man. Jesus releases the captive by disarming the demons. Jesus releases the captive by disarming the demons. This is a passage you should jot down. Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 to 15 say this. These are powerful truths that are true of the spiritual realm for all of us. Who name the name of Christ? It says this. And you, who were, past tense, dead in your uh, trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh... God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. Watch this. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. 
He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. You ought to take these three verses, particularly verse 15, that he disarmed the rulers and authorities, and you ought to meditate on them. You ought to sit before them. You ought to pray the Holy Spirit, would you teach me the truth that is found in here? With a word of reception, with a word of belief, the legal demands that stood against you have been broken. The authorities that had claim on you, that were laying claim on you, were rightfully disarmed. God puts them to open shame on a public cross by triumphing over them. As we look at this man, again, we're going to stay in the Scriptures, but as we look at this man, realize this. This is a prototype for Jesus' ministry still. Come as you are, but don't stay that way. Why Why wouldn't you want to stay where you are? Because hear me, we are born into sin. We are born into captivity. John makes it really, really plain that whoever sins is a slave to sin. Like like this is the thing in your mind where you go, well, I can't help myself. This is the thing in your mind where we do all kinds of justification and the very things we want to do, we don't end up doing. We we, we can't do good and we, and we we are prone to do wrong. What is that? That's captivity. You say, come as you are, but don't stay that way because to leave you where you are would be to leave you under the rule and authority of the principalities of this world. So Jesus does for this man, Jesus does for us what we can never do for ourselves. Put, your, put yourself in the place of the man. It's not hard for many of you. You think he wants to be unclothed, living in, the, living in a cemetery? ostracized, having all these horrible things? No. But Jesus does for him what he could never do for himself. He does for us what we could never do for ourselves. He sets us free from our oppressor. Jesus stands up for us. Jesus fights for us. Jesus cherishes us by not only pursuing us, but by liberating us. And not only liberating us, but protect us moving forward. Friends, this is good news. This is, again, where the rubber meets the road of our faith in God. This is more than mere talk. This is the power that we walk in. What is at stake for you is evident from this man. I'll tell you who dabbles in the spiritual dark forces. It's those who've never really experienced it. It's cute and funny until it isn't. Do you remember after 9-11 how movies had to rewrite their ending because all of a sudden exploding buildings that were falling to the ground were not like cutesy entertainment. They were traumatic. And it would be not only insensitive, but insane to keep that scene in the movie. Let me ask you this. Have we grown sort of anesthetized to it once again? Yeah. But for a season, we said, that's not funny. That's, that's, that's terrifying. Again, I'll tell you who dabbles with dark forces and demons and satanic. It's, it's those who are so in- incredibly raptured by it that they're servants of Satan or those who, who haven't really experienced it. So what is at stake for us is really clear from this man. Spiritual oppression and bondage are frighteningly real and horrifically terrible. So as the four soils that Jim preached on several weeks ago tells us, the way we respond to Jesus is imperative. 
So let's, let's jump into this. How do the demons respond? The demons respond submissively. They reject Jesus. In fact, demons know without love, right? They have a better knowledge of who Jesus is. We've seen this already in Luke. So you can know Jesus without loving him, and you can submit to him without, without obeying him. That's exactly what demonics do. There's a lot of knowledge, and there has to be submission because Jesus is in command. We're going to get to more demonic stuff coming up. In a few chapters, we'll see Jesus sending people out to carry on this work. And there's really much that we don't know about Satan and demons, but there's a lot that we do know. Here's my pleading with you. I pray that you would have your, your imagination and your knowledge about demonic forces and Satan be informed by the Word of God and not by screens and popular culture. There's a fascination to take some things and just really run kind of crazy with it. We're, I'm, I'm going to show you a few things very, very quickly from Scripture that we, can, that we can say that we know because it's been revealed to us. Number one is that demons are simply fallen angels who followed Satan in his sin. What was the sin of Satan? It was pride and rebellion, right? Instead of humble submission, there was prideful rebellion. Look around our world, by the way. This, is, this doesn't take a rocket scientist or a crazy theologian to figure this out. This is still the root sin of much of what ails our country and our city. Instead of humble submission to the Word of God, there is prideful rebellion, open rebellion to the Word of God. It's the root sin of Satan. Write down Second Peter chapter 2. It just says this, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, who are angels who sinned? Demons. But he cast them into hell and committed them to the chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until judgment. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. And especially those, look at this, who despise authority, that's Satan and his demons, Bold and willful, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones. Peter, no doubt, witnessed this event. He got in the boat with Jesus. He's off the boat with Jesus. He's giving some clarity that the Holy Spirit gives him. You don't need to write all of these things down, but let me go through this very, very quickly. We'll probably loop back to it in a couple of weeks. But Satan is demons are your foe and in no way your friend. In, in, in any way. Satan and demons actively war against you. Satan and demons want you to die and will seek to kill not only your physical life, but your soul, your sanity, your love, your marriage, your joy, and your ministry. Satan is known by many, by, by many different names. The dragon, the serpent, the enemy, the devil, the tempter, the murderer, the father of lies, the adversary, the accuser, the destroyer, and the evil one. Satan and demons are powerful creatures, but they are in no way equal to God, who is all-knowing, all-powerful, and everywhere. Let me say this. The Westerns got it wrong. The movies that put, portray and pit good versus evil have it totally wrong. There's no fierce battle where good barely wins out at the end. What we see in the storm is what we see in this demonic. Is that Jesus is in authority and the demons are submissive to him. They properly fall down at his feet. 
Not because they are singing worship songs, but because they recognize that a greater authority has come before them. And what do they do? They beg. You know who you beg to? You beg to the one who has an authority to to do whatever he wants to with you. That's who you beg to. They are, in essence, throwing themselves at the mercy of the court. We know who we are. We're clear on who you are. So this raging battle against good versus evil is not how it's portrayed, friends. You have no rival, we just sang. Man, I was thinking of this when we sang that. Lodge that in your brain. Demons are powerful creatures, but they are creatures created by the Almighty God, and they are under His submission. Lastly, Satan and demons have no claim on those who are in Christ. Colossians 1.13. Colossians 1.13 says this, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son. Hear me, once that transfer has been made, you are safe and secure. He will not lose a single one that he has transferred from the domain of darkness into his marvelous light. All right, these are some things we know generally. What are some truths we learn very specifically about demons in Luke chapter 8? It is pitiful, terrifying state to be possessed by demons. There is nothing glamorous or good about it. It is a terror not only to the individual person, but to those around him. There's a sort of a ripple effect. This person had to be kept under guard. Why? Because demonic forces are roaming the, the, the local cemetery. The man is naked, living amongst the dead. Mark adds that he's crying out and cutting himself. The social isolation, the superhuman strength, the self-destructive tendency, all of these are evidence of what Satan and his demons do to people. That is the trajectory always. After being cast out, the number of pigs rushing in a stampede to their death sort of reveals the large number, legion. Legion's technically 6,000 soldiers in a, in a Roman army. We don't know that there was 6,000 exactly, but calling back that there were that many and having a whole herd of pigs stampede to their death, again, just implications of what demons are up to. The goal of Satan and demons is to destroy people created in the image of God, period. And they'll do whatever they can and however much leash they are given to do it. Two great errors that C.S. Lewis calls out in the screw tape letters are these. The two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devil. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. I saw this at San Jose Christian College. I met people there who they literally saw a demon behind every rock. If you broke your shoestring while you were tying your shoe, a demon sliced it in half, is trying to trick you. I mean, it was really incredible. And I sort of stepped back. I was like, wow. And I would term this an unhealthy fascination. In fact, they gave so much glory to demons and Satan. I said, man, let's turn our eyes on where we're supposed to be focused. And there are people, though, who just completely disregard and 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 i guess read over whole chunks of scripture where demonic forces are discussed don't be like either one of those like a poisonous snake don't hike unaware and disbelieving but hear me don't stay indoors and never go hiking because there are snakes out in the world okay just just think about it uh have have proper healthy respect without being fascinated by them 
Demons prove that knowledge alone is not enough to save. Um, I, I could be the most accurate teacher. We could set up the most accurate theological uh, schools. Um, that is not what saves a person. Again, demons know really well who Jesus is. They're, they're crystal clear on his identity. Clearly, we see uh, them knowing the identity of Jesus. They knew to fall down at Jesus. They knew to beg for mercy before the one who is in control. Demons understood the truth that we see built into this created world, and that is that when this room was dark this morning and these lights came on, again, there wasn't an epic struggle to see whether darkness or light would fill, would, would, would fill the space. Light wins out in an instant. That's built into our created order. And so when you turn a light switch on, you just, you just see that and recognize that's the instantaneous power that good God has over evil, Satan. Every time, always, without fail. And, and so as we pray, that's the kind of faith that we can have. That's the kind of thing we can see built into creation and say, wow, the sunrise, sunrise just dispels the thickest darkness in an instant. It comes and just beams of light flood what's happening. So demons pridefully know and reject Jesus. Look at what the citizens do. The population of the city fearfully reject him. Again, not all rejection is the same. Look at verse 34. When the herdsmen saw what happened, they fled and told it to the city. We're telling on Jesus. And they also told it in the country. Then people went out to see what had happened. And they came to Jesus and found the man whom the demons had gone, from whom the demons had gone, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it told them how the demon-possessed man had been healed. Then all the people of the surrounding country of the Gerasenes asked him to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear. So he got in the boat and returned. This is one of the saddest verses in all of Scripture. I read this, I studied this in Bible college, and I thought in my mind, I thought, I don't think I've ever seen a sadder verse in Scripture than Luke 8.37. That a miracle takes place in their seaside city, that they go out and check it out for themselves. They know who this guy is. They see him clothed in his right mind, sitting at the feet of Jesus, restored. No way. I mean, we, we couldn't even chain this guy. And fear takes over, and they bid Jesus to leave. Again, think about raging Middle East religious discussions. It's at least a polite rejection, right? They didn't do what his hometown did. Let's take him to the cliffs of the city and try to kill him. People in the Middle East today are still known for being passionate about, about their beliefs. And there's this polite dismissal, we want you to leave now. It's a sad verse. Jesus does. He leaves. This is powerful. Jesus pursues you, comes to you, beckons you, and woos you, but Jesus does not and will not force himself on you. Jesus respects your no. I plead with you, with everything in me, do not be like these townspeople. This is a godless city that has God in the flesh visiting them. And what do they do? They fearfully see a miracle. They check it out. They ask. They see the evidence. And they shun God in their midst and ask him to go away. Evidence is there for comprehending, but some only see 
um, loss of financial gain. Some only see a power they don't understand. Some only see a disruption to their little kingdom, their little status quo that they've built up. They feel comfortable there. Sure, there are some problems, but we all have problems. Others are able to see and comprehend what went on and be transformed by it. When I think about people, particularly in youth ministry, um, our students just came back from Hume Lake, and I'm always taken with the many, many miraculous things that have gone on. In fact, God brought this to mind. Two people from our college ministry at Valley Church are elders at local fantastic churches. Both of these men came not from the normal way. They didn't grow up at Valley and show up. They were students, and one was an intern at Apple, and, and they got plugged in, and they just began to, to grow, and, and they were a delight to have here. And here they are just in ministry doing great things. As I think back on youth ministry, I thought back to a couple of very specific families at what's now called Venture Church. One were these two brothers. God got a hold of these brothers' heart. They made a commitment of faith, maybe at Hume Lake, maybe not. I don't remember. But they were so moved by Jesus Christ that the parents came to me one, say, one, one time asking for a meeting with me. I said, okay. Parents are constantly asking junior high pastors for meetings. Usually we did something wrong. That's what I found. So meet with your junior high youth pastor sometime just to say how great he's doing. That would be helpful. I said, what's up? They said, what is happening with this youth group? I said, a lot. You, you tell me the category. We can dive in. My kids are at a beach house on vacation and they will not let it go that they have to be back in on sunday morning at 9 a.m because they will not miss youth group at this church you tell me what's going on i go oh that they got a hold of jesus they're attracted to jesus they love the jesus community that he's put them in and, and they they would trade anything for that that's what's happening next topic no 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 that's it that's all we're here to talk about Don't you find that weird that junior hires want to leave a fun place of vacation for this? I go, absolutely not. Because the human soul, if you scratch where it really itches, man, nothing else really compares to it. Those brothers lodged in my mind and and had a positive influence on their family. Praise God, their family came with them and joined them at church. Now, I contrast that with another uh, individual. This happens many times, though. Someone comes, they want a meeting with me. They say, what have you done to my kid? What's happened to my kid? What's, what's going on? I go, well, t- again, tell me what we're talking about. Oh, that's that. Your kid has come into saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. That's what's happened. And here's how it happened. Here's how it laid out. Here's why I let you know very clearly when we got home from camp, kind of the decision they made and whatnot. And instead of being overjoyed and, and, and coming and supporting, what they, what they did was they asked me to leave. They asked their child to leave. They removed their child from this. So their middle school, high school student, some even in college, that this, this power that they don't understand, this change happening in their kid is scary to them. It doesn't line up with, with what they've been taught, with, 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 with what they believe. And so they have, they have pulled back from it. And I have seen, I've been a part of some gut-wrenching meetings where the individual wants to stay learning about their new life in Jesus Christ and their family takes them away from that. This is the response of the townspeople. People tend to fear what they don't understand. God's in the very midst. It's the best thing that could ever happen. And yet they shun Jesus instead of seeking Jesus. Finally, If the townspeople are the saddest verses, the response of the formerly possessed man is nothing short of phenomenal. Verse 38, the man from whom the demons had gone out begged that he might be with him. 
This is the kid. I just want to be around Jesus. But Jesus sent him away saying, return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And he went away proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. Church, it matters how we respond to the word of God. Receive it. Don't reject it. In the Bible, we see this time and time again. Many people come out to be wowed by Jesus, but, are, but, but fail to move into the phase of worshiping Jesus. Hear me, Jesus did not come to earth to create, um, you know, to, 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 to wow us, but rather to be worshiped. Jesus didn't come to perform. Jesus came to perform surgery, give us a heart of flesh where once there was a heart of stone. And what we see in the disciples, what we see in this man, is a movement from woe to worship. And in these townspeople, exactly the opposite. You know, nothing's really changed. The masses today love it when Jesus wows us, gives us some great truth, feeds us, entertains us, distracts us from the status quo. But the moment that Jesus exposes us, calls us to change or ask anything of us, whoa, whoa. He's unwelcome here. Let's not get fanatical about all this. The scriptures have some good advice, but it's not authoritative in my life. I'll pick and choose what I want. Here's my question for you, for me. Do I respond like demons? Like a town void of God? Or like a man possessed? Here's what's utterly powerful about being transferred from the domain of darkness to the domain of of light. You are possessed, the scriptures say, by the Holy Spirit. You are a man, woman, or child possessed by the Holy Spirit. There's something in you when the word of God is preached, when truths are sung, when the community comes together in faith, there is something in you that overwhelmingly agrees with that. It's almost involuntary like a sneeze. You go, wow, my flesh isn't welling up to say, God has no rival. I love that truth. God has complete authority over every decision in my life. I love that truth. That is not the flesh. Flesh doesn't want that. Flesh fights against that. That is seeds planted to the Spirit, reaping life in you. Do I respond like demons, a town void of God, or a man possessed? Christian, listen to this. Know that this life, this title of Christian, doesn't exclude you from the tribulations of this life. In fact, you stay close to those who are in a wretched state without Jesus by remembering. This is why we call to mind. This is a part of what communion will be about in a few moments. We call to mind our wretched state prior to Christ because it keeps us tender-hearted to those who are still in that state. A horrible, hear me, satanic sin is to somehow grow prideful in our salvation prideful in our knowledge, prideful in our obedience. Prideful rebellion is the first sin. It's satanic. Demons follow Satan into that. We are not to. Um, Luke chapter 8, 2. I just have to show you this. Mary Magdalene is among those with Jesus... At the start of this chapter, part of his ministry, listen to what it says in 8.2. Also some women who had been, these are just telling who's with Jesus. Also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. The formerly possessed 
are now disciples of Jesus, financers of Jesus' ministry. And then it calls out Mary, called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out. This is just incredible news. That you can be demon-possessed and then a deacon. That you can be demon-possessed and then God's going to call you into ministry and and begin to be uh, as one who's now in the kingdom of light, a force for good. Because Satan has no claim on you. I'm going to invite the band to come on up. And I am going to... I'm going to save the following page and a half of notes that I have left for next week. Because I can. (laughs) Lord willing. I plan on being here. If you're here, you can hear it. If not, listen to the podcast. I want to give you very specifically, if you are facing demonic um, oppression, demonic challenges right now, there are some really clear things in Scripture that I I want to hand to you. Maybe you are facing a, a world, a whole community of rejecting, shunning, fearful people in your life. I think there are some things from Scripture I want to hand to you. Maybe like this formerly possessed man, you are, you are facing a, a ministry call. Do you see that instead of going with Jesus, which is what he wanted to do, he bears fruit in keeping with repentance by saying, at your bidding, I'll do what you want me to do. I want to come with Jesus. He says, no, no, no. You stay in your hometown. You go minister to these godless people. You are now the witness. If you're a, if you're a Christian... It comes with the responsibility to share. What does that mean? It means just declare the great things God's done in your life and is doing in your life. Some of you need a message. Man, I'm going back to a heart. You don't know my workplace. You don't know my neighborhood. You don't know my family. These are fearful, unbelieving, shunning people. Yeah, I I do know you're that kind of people. So we'll get to that next week. Um, In preparation for communion, which we're going to do in just a second, I want us to sing this song. As Rob said, the, the theme of, of broken chains is, is on display. Uh, also the theme of, of authoritative claim and who has you. So as we, as we prepare our hearts in, in, in celebrating communion by remembering Jesus through the elements, I want you to hear this powerful freedom song uh, that we're going to sing together.